The years have all passed, we've reached modern times The Nazis have come with their Nazi war crimes Yes, the power was there, the power was found Six million people have heard that same sound That old knock on the door, knock on the door Here they come to take one more Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast in this episode, I'll be continuing my look at the works of Mary McCarthy. Uh, and in this episode, uh, we'll focus on The Oasis. The Oasis was written in 1949, or was published in 1949. And it is, I believe, her second novel. It's at least the second one included in this anthology. She may have written some stuff uh, in between the company she keeps in The Oasis, but it's not included here. Maybe some stories or, or whatever. We'll get to those stories later. Um, but anyways, the the Oasis, the second vol, the second book in this this anthology, uh, which includes this is the the first of two anthologies put together by the Library of America. Uh, these cover novels and stories from 1942 to 63. It, it it consists of four novels and and eight short stories from a couple different collections. Okay, so the Oasis, the Oasis is just a. It, I find it a really bizarre and weird novel. It it almost it seems to have a serious tone. If someone were to tell you what the novel's about, it it sounds kind of serious. In fact, Hawthorne wrote a novel kind of on a similar theme, and that would be intellectuals going to a, a utopian settlement, a intention what we'd call an intentional community, and trying to create kind of a socialist ideal, right and and then the novel gets weird. It gets weird really from the get-go when we realize who's participating in this utopian settlement. Um, and just bizarre things happen. And within 80 pages, we're told that this community falls apart. Um, I have to think just because I find, I find it very bizarre. I find it hard to take very seriously. In fact, it's the things that happen are just so ridiculous. And, and the, the, the divisions in this group are, are so odd. I mean, I've never been a part of an intentional community. I, I guess I've been in clubs and groups and things, but um, this this is this is a criticism. This is a, a mocking criticism, I think, of of American academia, of the left, uh, or maybe as America as a whole. Right? I think this could be a metaphor for any number of things. Uh, I think they all work. I, I think, in some sense, it is a metaphor for Mer- an America that's divided politically between those who want to uphold the ideals of of Americanism, whatever that might be, right? And that's not even agreed upon, and though in kind of a more of a cynical um, take. In fact, if you read The Company She Keeps, so much of this novel is going to sound familiar to you um, because you have, like, the, the cynical capitalist character, like the the man in the Brooks Brothers shirt, that story in The Company She Keeps. There's characters that kind of fit that who are kind of from the businessman class but, you know, can pretend to be sympathetic to to socialism but at the end of the day are just cynical realists um, then you have the intellectual idealists who who are so committed to their like the party line and, and doing everything exactly according to some kind of theory that they really can't can't function well outside of that right it makes them kind of inept um, I mean overall though I think although it, it could be taken as a metaphor for America I think it's also very clearly a, a very brutal, and and real, you know, I don't want to say realistic, but a brutal and honest portrayal of just how uh, 
how weak and how ineffectual the American left was in the post-war years. Um, so this novel is set, I think, basically at the same time it was written. So set after World War II. Um, and it's just a group of intellectuals. I think it's, is it, is it 100 or so? It, it's a fairly large number of people. I wrote it down in my notes somewhere. Um, yeah, not even that many. More like, yeah, I wrote down 50 here. 50 radicals were all like self-presented radicals. Some are more liberal types, like Mary McCarthy is more of a liberal type. And that, that's why she kind of looks at the left let's start a little sarcastically in a lot of her works. She, she does kind of mature into a, a, a classical kind of post-World post War II American liberal. But some of those people are there too. People, you know, who maybe don't embrace all the the radical sentiments of an intentional community, the idea of really creating an alternative to capitalism. You know, the, the settlement is called Utopia um, pretty uh, arrogantly and aggressively. Uh, I'm sure there were utopian communities back at the turn of the century called something like Utopia or whatever. Uh, some of them had fairly bold names, but but yeah, McCarthy is going overboard with this. I mean, everything is exaggerated to extremes here to, to make a point. Um, so... Basically, the plot is you have two groups in this, in Utopia. You have the realists, uh, and the, the kind of the best example of the realist is, is um, a man named, what's his name, William Taub, right? And he basically is, you know, he has his roots in the left, but he basically became, you know, Kind of sarcastic, you know, cynical about the left, right? Very much anti-Stalinist, right? One of these people who who, who essentially thinks socialism is a doomed, failed project. Yet he wants to invest a lot of his time and energy into this utopian community, uh, but he just wants to see it fail. He's just interested in seeing it fail. So, uh, and there's a whole faction of people within Utopia who fit that that mold that, that basically embrace the whole thing um, sarcastically or or. Uh, sorry, ironically, they, they kind of embrace it ironically. And that, that's the realist faction. Um, then you have the purist faction. And, and they're just as bad in a way. There are some more sympathetic characters in the realist faction than I think in the, in the, or in the purist faction than in the realist faction. But by and large, they're, they're kind of odd too. Uh, they're led by a guy named McDougal McDermott. And, and this is actually, these people are actually reflections of McCarthy's own people she knew. I think like apparently William Taub was actually based on one of her ex-lovers, right? And, and McDermott was based on some friend of hers, right? Who also was like a radical. Um, you know, but he's just, these are like, these are such anarchists, largely. They're very libertarian. They're very uh, committed to socialism but of a kind of an American libertarian type and the kind that is attracted to intentional communities, right? Certainly, if you read Marx, you know, a lot of classical Marxists think the whole agenda of intentional community is kind of doomed to fail, right? Because the best they can do is kind of create a, 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 an alternative social system that exists within the capitalist economic system, right? So it really, really can't go anywhere. I mean, I'm more attracted to the intentional communities because you know, they, they can provide liberty for people. I, I'm thinking of the maroon communities, the pirates uh, in the Caribbean. These types of areas, these regions, did did have a, were a real challenge at times to the dominant system, especially the maroons, 
Um, but they were also a, a cultural or political alternative that was real and significant and, and power, right? It, you know, like pirates actually had their own essentially like a free society for in the Caribbean at various times. So until they were suppressed by the British. So I, I, I'm more attracted to the intentional communities. Maybe it's because I do come more from an anarchist point of view than a strict Marxist one. But nevertheless, you know, McCarthy seems to think both of these groups are kind of silly. One is because they're just too idealistic, um, basically easily suckered into ideas and traps and debates. And the other are just cynical people who are only there to undermine the project in the first place. Right. We have a host of characters. Um, maybe the most interesting for me is a character named Katie Norrell. And she's a married woman. She comes there with her, her husband. And she's, I mean, first she's like the only real female perspective we have uh, from any of the major characters. There's some other wives there, but she's the only one we hear a lot from and, and spend a lot of time with. We spent, in fact, we spent a lot of time with, with Katie Norrell. Um, but she's also the one who sort of predicts that the colony is going to fail. And she's the one who does the best diagnosis. Of it. And the diagnosis she gives is very similar to the diagnosis given to, to um, uh, Meg, the main character in the company she keeps at the end. Remember that? At the end of that novel, there's a psychiatry patient kind of confessional scene. And that scene, that ends with kind of a diagnosis of how to move forward from when you're divided between your ideal and the reality, right? Uh, Remember, that was the big conflict in the company she keeps is her idealism, her intellectual independence and the reality of, of living in, a, in, a, in, in this bourgeois middle class world. Right. And, and, and it's not surprising then that the two factions in Utopia are the realists, the people who think basically capitalism is inevitably victorious and there's nothing we can do about it. And he's just like kind of there for the lulls and uh, the idealists, the purists who who want to stick to their their ideals no matter what, right? Um, these are, that's the same conflict we had in the company she keeps and as a here too. So if you read these two novels together as I did, you might find it a bit repetitive. Um, you might be attracted to this novel because you want to read about a utopian community. I, I think this novel is not very good at that. In fact, I don't know of any novels that look at utopian communities very sympathetically. Hawthorne's take on Brook Farm, of course, Hawthorne lived there a while, right? So he had perspective on it that that's drawn from life but that's not a very optimistic portrayal of it maybe a little bit more sympathetic than what we get here this is very very brutal and cynical um, I mean I don't think her conclusion is that this could never work it, it's just it can't work with these people I mean these people are not suited to to form a community like this at all it's it's kind of a big joke um, so those three characters are kind of our main ones there's also a guy named Joe Lockman who arrives and and kind of, he's the first character we meet. Uh, he, he's arriving to Utopia, and he's, he's there at the beginning, but he's not, he's not one of the original founders of it. So then the first opening conflict in the community is, should we let this guy in? Well, why not? If a guy wants to join Utopia, why not let him? Well, um, as Madhul McDermott says, like literally on the third page, he's the antithesis of everything we stand for. My God, aren't we going to have any standards? I don't hold my business, his, his business against him. He may be a decent employer, but my God, the man is uncivilized. Don't you believe in anything? This fellow is a Yahoo. So who is this guy, Joe, Joe Lockman? Well, he's, a, he's basically a capitalist who is curious in utopia and wants to live there. Um, 
Joe's, this is right, the first paragraph. Joe's intentions towards utopia were already formidable. Honoring his principles of equality and fraternity, he was nonetheless determined to get more out of it than anyone else. This determination was purely spiritual. Translated from his factory and his garden to this heavenly mountaintop, he intended to paint more, think more, and feel more than his co-colonists. He meant no evil by this. He called it leadership. Well, so what is his character? Well, yeah, he's a rich man. He's a business owner who's essentially doing this for a vacation, it sounds like to me. Now, he makes a lot of it. He thinks he's going to contribute something. He, he's your technocratic business elite. He's your Elon Musk type, I suppose, who thinks he has a vision for the future, but in the end, but really is just playing around, playing around with nonsense because he's rich and can afford it. right? I think McDermott's right to question whether this person should join. William Taub and the realists want him to join, You know, again, kind of for lulls. I, I get the feeling throughout this, this novel that the realists are, are basically there for, for laughs or, or excited to see this fall. And prop up conflict in order to create fault lines and to divide the community and to exacerbate that, that collapse. Joe Lockman's not the worst. I mean, he, 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 just wants to, he just wants to vacation in utopia, right? So I don't know if that's a metaphor for the casual radical or the one who plays with radical ideas, but all these people are essentially playing with ideas. They're, there's no real effort to do anything significant. The only exception to that is towards the end of the novel, there seems to be a significant effort to, this is set right after World War II. There's a lot of refugees in Europe. It's before really Europe started to unify into a larger group uh, through kind of the common Union market and eventually the European Union. Uh, you have the UN, but you have this huge refugee crisis. So the utopia is what they, they plan to do is maybe create like franchise utopian communities throughout America. That can be places that refugees, displaced people, orphans, and such can settle. And they want to call it like the United States of Europe, uh, which is kind of interesting given that Europe would move towards kind of a United States of Europe with, with the European Union. As much as it's under threat these days, it's still a pretty amazing development of the post-war years is the, is the bringing together of, of a Europe that's been, that has been at like war almost constantly for, for 400 years or so. Really, if you look at European history, it's like war after war. Isn't it? some of those wars go on for decades? The War of Spanish Secession and the constant war between France. I guess the 19th century was a little bit more peaceful, but they just exported war to the colonies. You know, peace at home, yeah, but but violence abroad. Um, but that ends right, and you have relative peace, with some notable exceptions, of course. Uh, and that was made possible by efforts to create something like a United States of Europe. Uh, the effort here, though, is really about like be a be something meaningful. Be uh, uh, give help, give aid, give succor to actual refugees from Europe. But that doesn't go anywhere. There's no way nothing is anything that's going to get done in this community. I mean, they're just it's so ridiculous that people are so divided. No one's even the people who are serious, the purists. You would say, well, they're serious at least. Aren't that serious? I mean, they spend most of their time debating and arguing and discussing things. And and yeah, that's the novel, The Oasis. So, I mean, it's, I guess it could be worthwhile kind of going to the plot points. I mean, I wrote them down anyways. Uh, so let's see. Okay, well, we're first introduced to Joe Lockman, and, and he arrives, and then we're thrown right into this debate about whether Lockman should join. That's the first initial conflict, right? Um, then this allows McCarthy then to describe these two factions that already exist. They're there before the novel even begins, and they're there um, throughout the... As, as the story develops. 
They never leave. Um, and both are wrong, essentially. The, the purists are wrong because they basically are, are inept. They're, they're, they have paralysis because nothing can really... Here's the problem, right? Nothing, they, they can't do anything that isn't a contradiction of, of anarchism. And they're essentially anarchists. They're, I think they're called libertarians throughout this a lot, but they're, they're actually like anarchists, right? Not, not, not to be confused with the post-war libertarians. At the time Mary McCarthy wrote this, libertarianism was associated with anarchism more than it was with like the right-wing, new right, and Randian types. Um, it, it had a different meaning. Um, but it basically means they can't do anything, right? Later, you know, they can't defend themselves. They can't uh, let anyone in who doesn't fully conform with their ideology. They can't force anyone to do anything. And it makes them kind of inept and incapable of actually governing. And, and even, even though it's democratic and it's direct democracy, it's only 50 people, you know, they, they still are in a sense almost a reactionary force because they're, they make it so difficult for anything to be done. The other side's no better, though, because the other side just wants to just wants to sabotage things and prop up conflicts. And it's kind of a, it's, it's actually quite funny at times how easily the realist, especially Taub, is able to trigger the, the libertarians and, and cause a fight, which is what they want all, all along throughout the, throughout the story. Now, just a little bit more about the realists, just because I, I think McCarthy has an interesting perspective on that. It, it's not so much that they're anti-Marxist, um, especially Taub. Taub is presented as a Marxist, but he's just a cynical type who thinks kind of the, the train of history cannot be um, dislodged or, or moved. I mean, he's, he's more critical of it from the, like, the way Marx criticized ut intentional communities or what he called utopian socialists, as essentially you're, you're just trying to get around the economic realities of it um you know they're not like right-wing plants necessarily although some of them might be quote in practice of course Taub and his friends conceded to anyone this automatically excluded fascists and communists the liberty of behaving as ineffectually as he wished but the right of a human being to think that he could resist history environment class structure psychic conditioning was something they denied with with all ferocity of their own pent-up natures and disappointing hopes. The idea that there was a loophole by which others were escaping while they themselves played trustees to the laws of cause and effect drove them to a fury that they could hardly rationalize. Thus, they were at once the victims and the masters of the doctrine of inevitability. The dictators of the diminishing circle of literary and political thinkers, they maintained the habit of, of authority by a, subversive, by a subversion, subversiveness Subservience, sorry, subservience to events demonstrating irrefutably that an occurrence that was already happening could not have happened otherwise and translating the security into predictions of the future. They had been for some time more or less inactive politically and their materialism hardened into a rallying cynicism. Yet they still retained from their Leninist days, along with the conception of history as arbiter, a notion of themselves as a revolutionary elite whose correctness in political theory allowed them the widest latitude in personal practices, end quote. Really great description of this this group, and, and that's how they're portrayed throughout the novel. I guess they're the closest we have in the novel to a villain, just because they are essentially saboteurs of this this intentional community. Now it's originally McDermott who doesn't want Lockman in. The Taub wants him, and but eventually McDermott lets him in. But they end, he ends up being a, a kind of a burden. Uh, Taub doesn't like how he behaves, and I think like he hunts or something, and he doesn't like he doesn't seem to like guns that much which is a strange thing for for a leftist but he you know eventually he tries to sabotage 
Lockman's admission into the community by blaming a cooking mishap that that um, uh, Katie, the the one female voice we really have, the significant female voice we have here, she kind of botched dinner, and and Lockman gets blamed by Taub um, for that, and and it's such a banal thing, right? You know, these people don't even, they, they live communally, supposedly, but they kind of have all of their own houses. They don't have electricity, I think, but, you know, they have some modern conveniences, not others. And there's a really interesting conversation later in the novel, and I think I'll get to it, where Katie's kind of like, well, what's, what's the point of allowing some technology in and not others? You know, that's not what we're, we're not... And again, it's kind of a criticism of the purists, right? You say, if we're going to be utopian socialists, we have to live in a certain way. We have to behave a certain way. We have to have certain moral morality about it. And Katie Norrell is the one who says, no, one can have the ideals and promote them realistically. It doesn't mean kind of sticking to some kind of uh, arbitrary ideal, especially in terms of life, lifestyle. I mean, I, I think this is kind of an interesting thought. I mean, I don't eat meat. I'm, I'm a vegetarian, but I, I never make the claim that by being a vegetarian, I'm somehow saving animals' lives or I'm doing anything, putting any dent in the, um, you know, in the factory farming system, or whatever. It's a choice I make as an individual, but I, I don't really politicize it very much. Um, but in this novel, especially among the purists, but on both sides, actually, there's a lot of moralizing about how everyday life is lived. And that, that's it really comes off as preposterous at times, especially with this fight over who botched dinner. Or was it breakfast? I forget. But really, the, the real tension in the first half of the, the novel is the, the Joel Lockman debate as the realists try to expel this guy from the community and the purists, you know, who, who are libertarians, they, you know, which means they can't really support it. They're against admitting him in the first place because he didn't share their ideals. But once he's there, they, they, they sort of support him. But And then you just get this, uh, this laughable, you know, organizing of the sides, of the politicking, the behind-the-rooms politics. There's late-night meetings about this, but the realists are getting together and plotting. Then they have the public meeting the next day, and nothing gets done, and people are just bickering at each other. It's kind of like actually pretty hilarious. And this, this would actually be pretty funny to see dramatized in some way. And if you just really pushed it to extremes, it would be, it would be a comedy, I would think, if someone were to dramatize this. You know, I don't know. It might only be funny to people who, who maybe are leftists. I, you know, of course, it's an ongoing joke about like factionalism on the left, right? And how the left splinters, right? You, you get three socialists in a room and suddenly you have three com so th two socialist parties uh, the, next, the next day. Uh, was that Monty Python made fun of that, right? In The Life of Brian with the, the different Jewish anti-Roman organizations. I can't get to hate each other more than they hate the Romans. Um, and that, that's what kind of gives us a lot, a lot of, of humor because it's just so stupid. It's such stupid stuff to, to disagree about like who burnt breakfast or should we get this guy, this capitalist guy who likes to hunt, you know, get rid of him because he's, you know, kind of annoying. Um, yeah, really, really stupid stuff. But, you know, that's, that, I think that's what McCarthy's saying about like politics on the left is it's just a bunch of stupid stuff and, and people bickering about nonsense. Um, I don't know if she thinks that way about at the roots. I, I don't know if she thinks that's what's going on with unions you know, or, I mean, again, she's kind of aloof from the working class struggle. 
uh, at least her characters are. I, I don't know about her own life. I, I get the sense she's not really into that. She she knows the left through intellectual circles, through educated, through journals, through her lovers, through the people in her circle. She's not she's not anywhere, as far as I could tell, in the grassroots of of, of the movement. So I, I I can I can like be sympathetic to that grassroots leftist movement, the union movement, the labor movement, whatever, and kind of get her point. Because I also have seen, I'm quite aware of the, the, the intellectual left and, and some of the pitfalls they, they fall into. And I, I think it hasn't gotten much better, to be honest. I think yeah, there's a lot of, not, not that I'm embracing left unity per se. I think there's many leftists who maybe are impossible to, to have an alliance with, but when you're talk, when you're on Facebook talking about alliances among the left, I mean, it, what, where's the struggle, right? It, you know, vast majority of those people are sympathetic to the left. They maybe read this stuff, but I, I'm not convinced they're in movements. I'm not certainly. Of course, I, I'm not in the U.S. now, but you know, I'm in a place where being involved in social movements is very, very dangerous. But nevertheless, it's my point is it's they're they're games. They're playing, and that these people are playing at, at Utopia. And the results are just so hilarious. They're, they're really comical. So, uh, yeah, that's the fun of it. Now, the, the Lachman debate, and remember, this novel is very, very short. It's only 80 pages. So the Lachman debate actually covers like more than a half of the novel. And that might be tedious, but as, as it gets more ridiculous, I, I think it, it kind of carries your interest. Now, after the Lachman stuff, dies down there's a conversation then about what should this community be doing because they're sort of peace for a while you know the the political bickering dies down a little bit and it's actually katie of all people i think a stand-in maybe for mary mccarthy herself says like what should we be doing right and that's when they they work out this idea to to host migrants and refugees and help them settle up their own utopian communities like this and to welcome them in here to create this thing the united states of europe in the united states kind of but separate from it as, as kind of a, a separate bastion the way utopian intentional communities sometimes intend to be and and this is a good project this is the really moment of hope here where you said oh we, we're not going to bicker about the guy with the gun anymore or, or silly stuff like that or or like the I forgot to mention that between Katie and her husband, there was a huge fight about who burned dinner too. And just shows you how kind of fragile their, their relationship is. But you're actually getting, they actually move away from that and say, well, let's actually do something quite, quite good. And there's a lot of conversation about this guy, Monte Verde, who's like the founder of it, but he wasn't, he, he didn't see the mountaintop. He, or he didn't get to see the promised land himself. He was just the, I think he died or something before that, but he's, he's like the, He's the intellectual founder of the, he's, he's the Karl Marx kind of figure who, who never saw the Soviet Union or whatever. And maybe was glad he didn't. <laughs> um, yeah, I think as they have kind of this conversation, this is where I really got the idea of, of maybe we should be looking at utopia the way McCarthy presents it as a metaphor for the United States itself. Um, so who is this that says this? It's... I think it's McDermott. He says, this country has one tradition that is viable. It has been from the earliest times a haven for refugee from tyranny. The Puritans of New England, the Catholics of Maryland, Irish peasants oppressing the landlords, the victims of 48, Russian Jews fleeing military service, the refugees from Mussolini and Hitler. 
And then someone laughs, what is this, Leo? A 4th of July speech? Um, all our messianic wars have been fiascos. We have mistaken our role. We cannot carry democracy abroad without, with military expenditures or food shipments. We can only recover it here when it comes to us looking for entrance. America is ideally a harbor, a state of the utmost receptivity. It is not our role to lead, but to be open. America, I imagine, if this plan can be put in effect, will disappear, at least as we know it. America is only a vessel waiting to be filled, a preparation for something that has not yet happened. Unquote. Great. I mean, this is this is an idealized viewer, version of America, but it's also we also have an idealized vision of utopia. I mean, this utopia is a joke. It's a, it's a running joke for 80 pages, but they have a glimmer of, of potential and, and a vision, just like America perhaps had that that glimmer of p potential or vision. Right. And it's something maybe close to this, at least in, in maybe in McCarthy's view. So the proposal then is is to is to create this United States of Europe. And by the way, this isn't McDermott. This is Leo, who is a, uh, his main role in the novel is to introduce this this idea. Um, so it's it's actually well received, and it seems there's some potential here. But then something else happens that kind of. Um, distracts the group from this actually good project that could go somewhere. So essentially what happens is some of the peop members of, the, of, of, of Utopia go out to pick fruit uh, somewhere, I think it's on the land they own, right? And there's like some squatters there, some people who are, are picking st free strawberries as well. And now we have a dilemma. We have a real dilemma, right? We're a Utopia, we're anarchists, right? But we have this kind of property lines. Can, should we allow these people to, to come in? And anyways, the, the utopians say, get out of here, you guys. You're, you're squatters. You're, you're trespassing. You're on our private property, right? And which is, of course, the big contradiction. You're, you're, you're claiming to control this territory and enforce it with borders, essentially borders. And you're talking about bringing in all these refugees from Europe who are in need and you're kicking out people who are just picking vegetables. Anyways, no one takes them seriously. I think no one really knows this is land that is controlled by this group or something. And, and Joe, Joe Lockman, who has his gun, you know, threatens them with the gun. And then they have a debate about this and discussion. And the purest idea is essentially, we really can't have private property in here. And the realists kind of basically want guards and, and to protect the borders, to build a wall, to, to, to keep out these, these foreigners. Um, after this really interesting idea of bringing in foreigners into Utopia and other communities like that, you know, it's, it's something as dumb as strawberry pickers that, you know, squatting strawberry pickers that, that, that brings this community to an end. It's, it's really quite uh, humorous, I think. So, of course, it's Katie who has the, the best insight into this dilemma. In fact, there, there's a disagreement between the realists and the purists over basically how to keep these pickers out. I mean, there's, there's not that many voices for open borders, as, as far as I saw. I mean, Katie sort of gets that way, gets to that point. But she says, you conceive the problem incorrectly. Again, this, this reminds me very much of the confessional at the end of the company she keeps, where the doctor basically says, you're conceiving the problem incorrectly. Almost the same language. Going on, if the problem is to get rid of the berry pickers, it follows that force is the answer. To that extent, you are right. Ultimately, they'll have to be resorted to. If they will not respond to moral coercion, 
which is simply forest withheld. But supposing there's no problem, it's simply an event. The berry pickers are in the meadow, the sun is in the sky. If you do not wish to eject them, there's no problem, there's only an occurrence. So then Taub sort of blames her of aestheticism and, and being a supporter of chastity, and she replies, I've never been sympathetic to it either, but just now I've seen what they mean. The body is not evil, and the body's the objects are not evil. The strawberries are ethically neutral. But if these corporeal things become the object of a mental desire, the result is an impurity, which is evil. A mental desire of material things is always bad. Sex becomes pornography. Hunger becomes greed or gomundism. You follow me? The mind, properly speaking, must desire only its own objects, love, formal beauty, virtue. But if the mind is not trained to distinguish its object from its bodies, it confuses the two. It constructs the whim for the strawberries into an ethical demand. It appears then to the mind that it needs strawberries and is therefore morally justified in any action it may take to secure them. And since the strawberries are a material thing, they can, in the last analysis, only be secured by force, which is a physical necessity. If we had been hungry, there would not have been nothing inconstant about putting up a fight for the strawberries. However, since our desire for them was mental, one strawberry would have served as well as a hundred. Um, and this kind of really reminds me again of the conclusion to the company she keeps, where it's is that there's this gap between kind of this mental ideal and the reality in our lives. And the reality in this lives are these are just wild strawberries that no one cares about in a material sense. It's just a it's a it's an intellectual obsession about borders. And I don't know if it gets, I think somewhere here it's stated that explicitly, but certainly I'm thinking this way. Like borders are an abstraction, right? And the fact that these radicals can't see beyond the line of pro, the, the, the property line, you know, and, and extend their ideals to their own borders. It's kind of fascinating for, for me, um, in the, given the sense of, of, of how we should maybe think about borders in, in this global, global world, right? There are people who, of course, obviously want walls and, and think we need to, to close up borders more. And, and, and the utopians, by and large, agree with that point of view. Right? They can't escape their mental map of, of the world. And so there's another level here. Like the realists, the purists, they can't escape their ideology. But what the peripicking situation reveals is they cannot escape their, their even more rooted uh, conceptions of, of property and ownership. And, and borders even and, and that's what's kind of horrifying about that that again it's a kind of a ridiculous event and if it was dramatized it would i think look really 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 funny uh to to viewers you know and the fact that it's taken so seriously in this novel is you know i think is mary mccarthy's at least by the characters it's taken seriously is mary mccarthy kind of lampooning the banality of, of many of these intellectual leftists. So those are the events of the story, more or less. Um, ultimately, what happens is Utopia fails. It's kind of foreshadowed at the end when people start to leave. Um, one of Jim Haynes, he's the character who leaves at the end, and this leads Katie to believe that once he's gone, who he is kind of more of the a more honest, idealistic character. You know, there it's it's the end of the road for, for, for utopia. And so she's just going to sort of enjoy her, her time there. And, and it does sort of become a vacation at the end. And, and that's, that's it. That's the novel. Um, so yeah, I, I actually, to be honest, I struggled with this novel. I, I really essentially had to read it twice. The first time I, I was really, I was expecting, uh, a novel about a utopian settlement, 
more. Well, I probably shouldn't have, I because I did read the company she keeps first, but I expected it to be more of a like 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 a social look or, or something of life on this community, not a not essentially a comedy about how petty and silly these leftists could be. Um, and, and how factional they could be. But it works as that. Um, and I, I think really the powerful thing for me is, is the danger of holding too much to one's ideals as they're detached from reality. That's, that's the theme that's in the company she keeps as well. But also uh, the fact that as much as you may have those ideals, there may be other assumptions under the surface, psychological even, or rooted in our character at a much deeper level that that can't be escaped and that's why the vast majority i think all pretty much all the utopians except maybe katie basically want to kick out the berry pickers they may disagree on how to do it uh how much force to use or whatever but they basically agree that they need to go which isn't coming from the ideals that the community is trying to cultivate they are trying to say let's be open to outsiders coming in in fact, it's it, it comes out of their obsession about property and lines on the on the map, and and that's kind of chilling. So, anyways, uh, a fun little novel. It only takes a few hours to read, so I think it's it's worth checking out if you're interested in any of those issues I've I've been talking about. But I don't know if there's too much more to say about it. Um, I've noticed online though that this this novel's kind of had a bit of a revival, and in recent years, so there there's probably people writing about it and. Uh, I think Hannah Arendt rather liked this novel, in fact, at the time. But it wasn't really, didn't get too much attention when it was first published. So next, well, the next we're going to look at The Groves of Academe. The Groves of Academe um, was published in 1952. It's a novel of the McCarthy era, uh, no relation to Mary McCarthy, as far as I know. Um, I, think, I think they're spelled differently, actually. Well, maybe not. Anyways, it doesn't matter. No relation. It's about a, a bad academic, a bad professor who gets fired and, and, and blames it on McCarthy witch hunts. And hilarity ensure, ensues there, too. Um, so I'll, I'll spend two episodes on that one. It's a, rather, it's a bit longer than Oasis. But we're, we're looking at intellectual leftists again, so we're not quite leaving this theme yet. But... Um, what's really pleasurable about this novel is just uh, the look at academia. It's it's a lot of fun if you're if you're someone like me who appreciates lampooning academia a little bit. So, anyways, that's what's coming up next. Uh, in the meantime, if you have any of your own thoughts about the Oasis or utopian communities or post-war American left or anything like that, anything of these issues that come up, Mary McCarthy herself, please uh, leave your comments below and or send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. I will talk to you next time when, after I finish getting my thoughts together about the growth of academe. I'm looking forward to it. Look I'll over the oceans, time. look over the lands, look over the leaders with the blood on their hands, and open your eyes and see what they do. When they knock over their friend, they're knocking for you with their knock on the door, knock on the door. Here they come to take one more with their knock on the door, knock on the door.